Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, Kobus, it's that time of the year where we kind of take a look back at everything that's happened, and we do a little bit of a sneak peek of what we think will happen in the coming year ahead in 2017. It is our annual year in review, year in preview show where we take a look at the top stories in China-Africa relations. Now, here's how it works. Uh, every year, we uh, we get together, Kobus and I, around a, a fire, a virtual fire. We kind of, kind of put our heads together to see what were the big stories of the year and what stood out to us the most. We've each picked three stories. We have not communicated to each other as to what they are. And one story for the year ahead. So, Kobus, why don't you get us started? Story number three, the third most important China-Africa story of 2016. What was it in your opinion? For me, it was the 2016 was the year that peacekeeping got real. Um, so ch- two Chinese peacekeepers were killed in South Sudan this year. Um, and at the same time, China, you know, the, the, the military facility that China is building in Djibouti is now actually being built. After years of being discussed, it's now actually in construction. Um, so I think this is linking China to permanent peacekeeping in, in Africa. But at the same time, I think this was the year that the Chinese people actually realized what that means. Um, and the, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, you and I picked actually the same third story of the year. Uh, really? I, I too, <laughs> pick, and I didn't expect you to pick those, actually. Uh, yes, in... Uh, in Mali in June, uh, one peacekeeper was killed, and then in South Sudan in July, two uh, Chinese peacekeepers were killed. And, and that really did mark a, a very important, I think, a sobering moment for the Chinese people where for the first time they were seeing their own soldiers coming home in uh, flag-draped coffins. And, uh, and that hasn't happened much and for the Chinese. And Chinese social media went nuts. I mean, it was a very, very, uh, understandably so, you know, kind of like it is a very emotional, very upset moment um, in, you know, on the Chinese internet. Um, and so it's going to, the, the popular reaction to this and possible kind of popular pushback to the idea of Chinese people being killed overseas for, you know, in these places that, that don't have a, 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 an obvious kind of benefit for, for normal Chinese people. That, that's going to be very interesting, I think, well, in the future. And it ties into our earlier show that we talked about, about China's expanding role in the Mideast, and that as the Chinese start to venture into far more conflict-prone regions, uh, it's very likely, again, that either Chinese nationals, civilians, or soldiers um, will, be, will be killed. Now, this was also the year when ISIS uh, beheaded a Chinese national in Syria. So the Chinese people are starting to become accustomed, as of 2016, to their people and their soldiers uh, suffering overseas in combat. And I think also this, you know, it's coming home what it means to be a superpower. You know, kind of so, so it, it, it adds a kind of a gravitas to the discussion within China of what China wants to do with its second largest economy status, what it, you know, what, it, what kind of place it wants to occupy in the world in the future. Okay, so story number two from me um, is a little bit of an adjunct to what we were just talking about, uh, and it's the Djibouti military base. But I'm not just going to talk about the Djibouti military base. I'm going to talk about it in a, in a broader context. So let's just back up a little bit. For the first time in Chinese history, uh, the Chinese now have a, an overseas – actually, let me, let me just back up. 
maybe not in Chinese history, I'll say in communist, you know, uh, since 1949, uh, modern Chinese history, the Chinese have a foreign military installation that is now on the verge of being completed uh, in in East Africa, in Djibouti, uh, right alongside there with the French, the Americans, and the Japanese. So it's hard to imagine that such a small country can host so many uh, members of the of, of the Security Council and great powers who are there in that little tiny island, uh, not island, but out, islet, actually not an islet, outlet, that's what I wanted to say, uh, of a country there uh, on the tip of East Africa. But this is really a significant uh, milestone in Chinese military history because it does mark a, a profound change in Chinese military strategy. Now, they're calling this a naval installation. They are technically not calling it a base. It's, you know, according to the propaganda, it is there to provide supply services to uh, the anti-piracy ships that are that are doing multinational operations in the Gulf of Aden. Uh, but it is connected to something much bigger. And so this is why I was talking about how this is the tip of a much larger story, the One Belt, One Road. And in 2016, we have seen this come to life for the first time. And One Belt, One Road, or the Maritime Silk Road, it's China's grand global trading strategy, is having a very significant impact on certain countries in East Africa, most notably Kenya, Tanzania, Egypt, Djibouti, where lots of investment is going there as the pathway of Obor goes along the Indian Ocean through the Suez Canal and up towards Europe and into Central Asia through the Persian Gulf and back around to China. So Djibouti's military base is definitely part of that bigger scheme, but at the same time, it also really does stand out on its own as an important milestone. It's also interesting in the sense that all of the other, um, you know, kind of infrastructure networks that the Chinese are putting in in East Africa. Now, this includes integrated rail systems. It includes a massive new data center, internet center um, in Djibouti. Um, All of these uh, massive ports in in Tanzania. all of them are, you know, kind of have very clear commercial use. Um, the the military installation adds another layer to that. It adds a kind of a geopolitical layer to that commercial network. You know, kind of so it, it immediately may, um, adds a kind of a, a different level of significance to East Africa as a future hub uh, for China and for other world powers. Um, I think a lot of this, a lot of work that the Chinese are putting in into East Africa at the moment is going to change East Africa into a regional hub. Um, um, in relation to India, in relation to the, the Arab United Arab Emirates, in relation to Europe, rather than just in relation to China. And that's interesting you bring up about the regional uh, aspect of all this, in part because in December of this year, uh, China Telecom also chose Djibouti to be one of its major uh, network hubs. So massive data pipes are going to be going into uh, Djibouti, which will then kind of spread out into parts of East Africa and also along Obor. And those data networks are there to support the One Belt, One Road network that the Chinese are building. So it's not only a military above the, the horizon, but now we're looking at data networks below the horizon as well that we're being able to – that will be part of Obor and will have a, a very profound impact, I think, as you talked about, not only on commercial but also on geopolitical interests as well. Yeah. Okay, let's go to your number two story of the year. My number two is a a smallish event that I think has has a widespread significance, and that is the quote-unquote cleanup or the de-Africanization of the the Xiaobeilu neighborhood in in, uh, Guangzhou in China. Yeah, very interesting you chose that one. 
The um, That neighborhood was a center for an, the African community who are mostly traders. Um, they were mostly there living in China, facilitating trade between Chinese manufacturers and African uh, buyers. Um, the Chinese government moved in in a big way after some complaints um, in China about crime in Xiaobeilu. Um, but a, a, a lot, you know, there were strong perceptions that a lot of it actually had to do with, with racial issues. Um, and those traders, a lot of them left China and a lot of them have moved to other other cities in China. And now Xiaobeilu, what used to be a very kind of African space with lots of Lots of hair salons, lots of African restaurants um, have now just been morphed back into just being a bit of a Chinese city. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, to be fair here, uh, part of it was racial. It may have been racial. Uh, but another part was just China's slowing economy. And it's much tougher for these immigrants to make a living uh, when there's just not as much trade. And the Chinese economy is soft and much softer than it was a couple of years ago. Exactly, and this is this is why I'm. This is the kind of significance that I'm seeing in this. It's a, it indicates a change in the Chinese economy, as you say. That China isn't the cheap manufacturer that it used to be. You know, kind of Vietnam, for example, is taking over that role, and a lot of some of these traders have actually moved to Vietnam. Um, it also shows the the role of Chinese conglomerates in in kind of tapping into this trade. So in the past, for an African trader you had to actually physically go to Guangzhou and like do that business there. Now you can actually order it online. Like you can just go to alibaba.com and just order a bunch of Chinese made stuff and it just gets delivered to you. Um, so there's no need to have that community there. At the same time, it also shows, it, it, you know, this was a year where Chinese racial attitudes towards black people got really exposed. Um, the the um, TV ad hysteria so that scandal that we discussed that was our most popular show of the year bar none that was our most popular yeah. show by far uh which was the the soap de, the detergent where if, if if you don't recall it was a a young chinese woman uh is doing laundry and this uh this black man presumably an african man comes into the room she kind of squeezes him into the laundry machine, pours in some of the branded detergent, and, you know, presto, 30 minutes later, comes out a very handsome Chinese man, or ethnically Chinese man. And the implication, of course, there was that detergent kind of cleans all the dirt off of everything, implying, of course, that this African man was dirty. And boy, did that just light up the internet. I mean, in a year when, when the whole world was discussing racial issues anyway, it just went crazy, this story. Um, and, you know, kind of it was indicative of uh, naivete in China about racial issues, about just pure racism within, you know, uh, within China. And it, it cast this kind of very strong light on, on, this on this neighborhood, this community and the difficulties of being black in China. Yeah, and it's the difficulties, I think, that the Chinese are having in general, not just with black Africans or African-Americans or African-Brits, uh, but also just in a more globalized, multicultural society. Uh, it's still a relatively new concept for, for many Chinese. And just like you know from your experience in Japan, where people grow up around people who look like they do. And so all of a sudden now you've got neighbors, uh, you know, who are different. And it's not easy to do. I know from my own country in the United States, um, we're clearly having, you know, serious racial problems now. Here we are in 2016, almost 2017, and we've done more to push the line of, 
you know, a multicultural, diverse society than almost any country in the world, and we're struggling with it. So it's really not a big surprise that the Chinese are also having some difficulties. That, of course, is not to forgive or justify or excuse a lot of the offensive behavior that comes out of the Chinese social networking scene and these kinds of ads, but it does hopefully put some context to it. If you're interested in these racial ideas in China, I really recommend that you read some of the essays and writing that were done by Roberto Castillo, who's a professor out of the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And he made these important distinctions talking about how there's a difference between racism and the prejudices that that this kind of revealed, this soap commercial revealed. But I think, Kobus, that was an excellent number two. Excellent, excellent number two. So, yeah, so what is your number one? I'm, I'm, I think we might have the same number one, but let's You let's think see. so? All right, okay. This was a tough one, in part because this year, unlike years past, there wasn't a huge story that jumped out at me. I actually had to look a little bit harder than I thought I was going to for this story. But this, um, th- this story for me is, is probably, um, you know, emotionally it's the most important story for me in the China-Africa relationship. And it was a Guardian report on December 13th of this year that announced that the Chinese are finally going to ban the domestic ivory trade. And the Chinese this year have made a lot of rumblings that they are going to do this, but they did not put a, a date as to when they were going to do it. Uh, It was about a year ago that they announced that they would outlaw the domestic trade of ivory. This is what activists have been asking for and begging for and pleading the Chinese government to do, not necessarily as a cure-all, but as a really important step to protect what is left of the African elephant population. And this December, uh, word came down that it does look like in 2017, the Chinese government will ban the carving factories. They will finally take away the CITES or the CITES exception. And that exception allows for the legal trade of five tons every year of ivory. And what what that does is it gives cover to the hundred tons of ivory that go in every year. And so people can't tell the difference between a legal ivory and an illegal piece of ivory. And so now, if everything goes as planned, 2017, uh, as it comes down in 2016, the word that will be the year that we will not have a domestic ivory trading scene in China. Was that your number one story? No, it wasn't. Oh. And it's very interesting because it's, you know, kind of my, when I look back at the year, it was essentially a year of waiting for this to happen. You know, kind of, and, and I, it they, hasn't uh, happened yet. That is a they, fair they, point. They, it, yeah, it hasn't happened yet. So I think I might be jumping the gun a, here. A timetable, right. So I might be jumping the gun, but it just shows my, you know, we had some amazing documentaries this year, you know, we, and we've talked to some really incredible activists and what's going on. And there is a sense of growing awareness, the work of Huang Hongxiang at China House in Nairobi. There's a growing awareness on Chinese social media. The Ivory Game was the Leonardo DiCaprio documentary on Netflix that ran. And it does feel like the Chinese are slowly starting to get it. Now, that being said... I live here in Vietnam. Vietnam is not getting it. I passed a store today where I saw from the window rhino horn and elephant, uh, an elephant really? ivory. So, you know, this, this is not going to solve the problem. And I, I, I really hear this, uh, you, know, the, you know, from Western environmentalists, and I'll just put it out there from white environmentalists, that, that, that really simplify the story, that say, if only China does this, everything will be better. Ivory trade is legal in Japan, by the way. 
Uh, it's yeah, not it enforced yeah, here. The Japanese are not doing anything about it. They're not it, doing yeah. anything about it. As much as the as the White House is talking about it, the United States remains the second largest market for illegal ivory in the world. So this is an important step, and I think you're right. I might be jumping the gun, but these announcements this year, to me, gave me some hope that something may happen. Did they announce a timetable They yet? did not. They did not. So this is from a Guardian article, and what made me a little suspicious, to be honest with you, is I don't really like single-source stories. And what made me a little bit suspicious about this one Guardian article on December 13th was the fact that it didn't kind of just, you know, blow up as a story. Only The Guardian was covering it. So that makes mm. me a little bit nervous that maybe this is a little bit... I mean, The Guardian, to me, is a very, very trusted source. But at the end of the day, you know, AP didn't pick up on it. Reuters didn't pick up on it. You know, the, the Chinese press usually celebrates these kinds of things as propaganda kind of victories. So I might be getting ahead of myself. But you can see it's emotionally a very important story for me. Mm, mm. It's, let's, let's see what happens. I think, I think it is... Let's hope 2017 is going to be the year of action on okay. this. Okay. Um, what yeah. what is your number one story? Okay, my number one might be a bit cheaty because it's not 100% directly just related to China Africa, but it I think changes the game in China Africa, and that is Donald J. Trump. Oh, <laughs> well, you took away my. Uh, okay, so we can do a combo here because that is my story for 2017 <laughs> because you did jump the gun here. Uh, so that was that you that is my my urine urine preview uh, story was Donald J Trump as well. So give me your take on Donald J Trump. My take is that he changes the narrative that we've seen the U.S. use to differentiate themselves from China and Africa. Um, so you know, through the Obama administration, the U.S. was was pushing this line that look, you can you can develop using this kind of, you know, this is authoritarian country that happens to have a lot of money, or you can take the, the, the U.S., you know, human rights approach, which will, which, which will buy you uh, less spectacular but more sustainable long-term development. You know, kind of that has essentially been the line that, that Hillary Clinton was pushing when she was Secretary of State. Um, and, you know, kind of with that was this, this strong idea that, you know, kind of you can do development fast or you can do it right. And the U.S. is doing development right. Um, I think Donald Trump essentially overturns that entire narrative. He overturns the narrative that the U.S. is is always and forever the the champion of human rights and liberalism, um, and you know, says he adds this kind of. Um, a kind of a fuzziness, you know, kind of in between the, you know, kind of an emerging superpower and an established superpower in Africa. Um, and that combined with the, the high level of securitization of U.S. presence in, in Africa as we, that we've seen under Obama, I think is going to really change the calculus of China-Africa relations this coming year. Very much so. So he, here's my take on it. And again, I think we have to put a disclaimer right now which is prior to January 20th, 2017, nobody really knows what President-elect Trump is going to do uh, because he's so inconsistent. He doesn't come with an established ideology or at least a consistent ideology. But there are a couple things that we've been able to discern from his cabinet appointments, which I think are very relevant to China-Africa. There's always been this pretense in the United States, and it's been, a, to me, um, a veneer of a pretense, but there always been a pretense between a separation between the public sector and the private sector, between the state and corporations. And I think what's so interesting about the appointments that Donald Trump has made is that that 
that that is completely gone. You know, the state and corporations and corporate power now are are revealed to be one in the same. And when you appoint the current CEO of Exxon to be your Secretary of State, um, you know, there it is. It's right up front. And I think that's very similar to the Chinese model, which fused state and corporate power together. So we might actually in some ways see some very similar types of engagements in Africa by the United States that we've seen by the Chinese, where state power comes to support corporate power in Africa. Certainly in the oil sector, that might be the case. Um, You're seeing calls in Washington now as from a number of conservatives, these are African lobbyists in Washington, who leverage China's presence in Africa as another front to engage the Chinese. So they're not engaging the Africans in Africa. It's a front to engage the Chinese and check Chinese power around the world. And that might be an interesting. I don't know if he'll kind of take the bait on that. I think, you know, these are African lobbyists who are desperate to get the president-elect's attention and to divert some resources because I think there's a lot of concern in Washington that Africa will just be completely wiped off the agenda. You know, remember, after George W. Bush, who really devoted quite a bit of time and money, particularly on AIDS relief in Africa, Obama wasn't that active. And I think there's a really, you know, just fear in Washington that Africa as a continent will get even less attention under Trump, who's going to focus, of course, on Russia, on the Middle East, and on China. So there's a very big chance that the United States disengages from Africa in many ways, except maybe on the security front. And that gives China a lot more running room to, to, to kind of to operate. The already, uh, I think last week, South Africa had uh, like front, like newspapers, South African newspapers had uh, the front pages across the board that Trump is apparently um, planning to cut AIDS relief to Africa. Um, so you're already seeing that happening. You know, kind of, um, you're really seeing the rumors of it happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, and I think what what, what take that what all with do, a grain of salt. Take that all with yeah, a grain of salt because, because nothing has been announced. Because yet. nothing has been announced. Um, but what what I think you know, kind of what what you see is would then be in Africa would be a kind of a exacerbation of a trend that we see that we've seen already under Obama, which is that the only real presence of the U.S. in Africa is pop culture and the military. Um, you know, kind of that there is that there's very few actual American companies active here outside of the extractive industries. Um, you know, kind of there isn't there isn't really a, an American face in Africa. You know, kind of there is there's just simply this kind of ephemeral pop culture that's everywhere, and then there is the the military. Um, and you know, compared to that, China's building stuff left and right. Um, you know, China China's doing a lot of work to actually engage African publics and African leaders. Yeah, and I so so I think the effect of Trump would be that if Trump does not focus on Africa, as many of us expect that to be, uh, then that would allow the Chinese kind of free reign to to at least engage African governments in ways that they at, right now might have been challenged by the 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 the, the, uh, the, the State Department. Uh, but it's you know again we're all just kind of speculating. Another scenario that I want to put out there in terms of Trump is remember that George W. Bush had a very, very strong evangelical base, and that was in part what fueled the development of PEPFAR, which was the, 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 his AIDS program. And there is a very strong evangelical force behind uh, Trump as well. 
Uh, Falwell from Liberty University was a big supporter. The, a lot of the Family Research Council and these other kind of lobbyists in Washington. And, and let's not forget the power of that lobby in Washington, in part because they were the ones who were instrumental in the creation of this South Sudanese state. They were the ones who really pushed the, the Bush White House to do more for AIDS relief and whatnot. So there is a chance, a chance that this evangelical wing may actually push Trump to, to do more on the human relief side. We'll see. Again, nobody really knows. But I think to your first point that you made, the rules of the game are changing. And, and Trump, if he's doing nothing else, is upsetting the international order. And that could help Africa, but it can also destabilize Africa in many ways. And it could, come, it could force Africa to rely even more on China than they had wanted to. I think it also indicates a kind of a shift in the the narratives that is being told about about Africa and the world. Um, you know, so now that Europe is fraying around the edges and the U.S. is very very obsessed with itself, Europe and, and the U.S. are both turning inward. Um, and they, you know, kind of um, through through the last few decades, Africa, have, you know, has only ever really been discussed uh, in terms of being a problem. You know, Africa has always a set of problems that need to be solved by the West in some kind of way. And it's either a problem in Africa or it's an even bigger problem when Africans cross the sea and actually pitch up in Europe or in the U.S. Um, you know, so, so Africans are a problem no matter where they are. They're especially a problem if they're at home in the U.S. or Europe, but they're also a problem when they're in Africa. Um, and I think compared to that, something like One Belt, One Road offers a completely different vision of, of a role that Africa could play. Um, you know, kind of so it makes China look like a futuristic kind of superpower compared to Europe and the U.S. that look completely just about the past. You know, it, it, makes, it makes the U.S. and Europe just like look small and mean and conservative and without any vision. Whereas, you know, kind of, I mean, I don't think Africans are generally naive about, you know, thinking about China's, you know, kind of Father Christmas. But still, it, at least something seems to be happening in China that, that isn't just simply, oh, you need to fix your governance or, oh, God, now you're here. Suddenly in our, in our country, you know, kind of we should try to house you or maybe not kill you. You know, kind yeah. of that, you know, that, that obsession, um, you know, with Africa is just this kind of like endless problem. Fair enough. Okay. If I had a drum roll sound effect, I would run it now. Kobus, give me your 2017 story and preview. My um, 2017 story is a small um, article that, that got picked up uh, by African Arguments by um, this researcher, Hannah Postal, who I hope to arrange for us for early, the next, early in 2017. She did a bunch of research in Zambia um, about immigration records in Zambia where she found that there might be many, many fewer Chinese living in Africa than previously estimated. So it, 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 she looked at one country um, and she counted the number of Chinese actually, you know, kind of coming into the country. Um, and then she compared it to with numbers of, of ch estima estimations of Chinese, you know, kind of from different kind of, of, of the, the Chinese presence in Zambia from a bunch of different sources. And in all of the cases, the, the number that she actually found in the country were much, much fewer. Um, so it's going to be, I think, what we might see is a kind of a re- 
a rethink of the size of the of Chinese migration to Africa, um, especially in the light that um, a bunch of new research in South Africa is showing that a lot of the Chinese people who arrived here in the mid two thousands are now leaving yeah. because uh, because the economy is getting tougher. Well, this goes to the heart of the story about you know how many people are there. The estimates now are somewhere around a million. But of course, there's no way to know. There is no centralized database. There's no pan-African census. Uh, Chinese migrants do not check in with their embassy or oftentimes register with the local government. So there is no way to check. Just the same way in New York City, we don't know exactly how many uh, migrants, illegal or otherwise, are there. People take a guess. Uh, but right now, what's interesting is over the past few years, that number, that that guess has been kind of creeping up. So, if, you know, five, six years ago, it was in the hundreds of thousands, then it went to a million. Now people throw around two million. And I think that in some ways goes to the fear uh, that people have about a surge of immigration, that Chinese are taking over their their country. I mean, let's keep some perspective here. There are 4 million Chinese immigrants in the United States, both, you know, new immigrants and established immigrants. The United States is a population of 330 million people or where thereabouts. Africa is significantly larger than that, close to a billion people. And we're talking about, you know, one to two million people. So every time I hear the hysteria that the Chinese are invading, the Chinese are taking over certain communities in Africa, it, it does kind of prompt a, uh, you know, just kind of like, come on, really? Um, that being said, there are pockets in, uh, you know, across the continent, Johannesburg being one of them, uh, Lusaka being another one, Nairobi being another, where there are high concentrations of Chinese. So that's why it might feel that way, that there is a much larger presence. But when you take the massive landmass that, that, that is Africa and stretch out you know, a couple hundred thousand, even a million people, it's not that significant. Yeah, yeah. And I also, one other key point on this immigration issue, you know, I got into a lot of discussions with people on Facebook this year on our Facebook page who would kind of say, you know, I'm tired of all the Chinese immigrants coming. I'm tired of all them, you know, taking our jobs and, you know, flooding our, our communities with, you know, different foods, different smells, whatever it is. And I said, I just find it rather ironic that you as an African are, are putting that argument out there because that's exactly what Europeans are saying about you. You know, I mean, yes. this was the year yes. of the year of the African migrating to Europe. I mean, across the Mediterranean, uh, you know, from Libya, you know, from all over the continent, from Gabon, from Nigeria, from everywhere. And, and the intolerance that we see in Europe now towards immigrants is ugly, to say the least. And I think that when Africans do it to Chinese or anybody else, it's just as ugly. And I think that that hypocrisy that I see coming out of the a lot of African media where they're talking about intolerance towards Chinese immigrants or other kinds of immigrants, is just ironic to me because, uh, you know what, we're in a situation now where Europe is facing immigration pressures. Certainly in the United States, Donald Trump was elected in part to crack down on, on, on immigration as well. And so my plea for 2017 is a little bit more tolerance. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of I had a testy exchange with a student during seminar um, where she was where, you know, kind of the class was complaining about about treatment of, of African immigrants um, in China and in and in the, the US and Europe. And then, you know, kind of an hour later in the same seminar, the one was talking about um, one student was talking about. Chinese immigration to to Africa and you know kind of like being very critical about the concept and I was like I ended up like asking her so what bothers you about this and she literally said she hates seeing Chinese writing on signs huh. 
Like she hates yeah. seeing that in Africa. Like she doesn't want it in Africa. I'm like, what? Yeah, Are I mean, it's just, you know, but that lack of self-awareness to me is just, you know, is so frustrating. It's frustrating to me in the United States. It's frustrating when I lived in Europe. And it's frustrating to see that in Africa as well. But maybe that's just human nature. And, you know, it's hard for people to kind of, you know, wear both shoes at the same time. So um, mm. it has been an eventful year, as it always is. We will be back Every week. Wait a minute. Oh. What was what was your prediction? No, my prediction was to oh, Donald Trump. Trump. Sorry. So you kind of beat Donald me to the Trump. punch sorry, there. Sorry about that. Yeah. So Donald Trump. Uh, so <laughs> Trump and uh, and migration are two stories, which is funny because those two are so linked in so many different parts of the world. You know, I mean, yes. that is that is the story in Europe. It's the story in the United States. It's the story in in Africa. You brought it up about the. You know, the, the, the migration leading out of, 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 of China as well. So migration, I think, is going, you're right, is going to be a huge story in 2017. Um, we are just, I, I think, just a little personal word now to end the year. We do this every year. Just a, a word of thank you for everybody. You know, we've been doing this show now for seven years. Um, we've been doing it every week for seven years. When Cobus and I started this back in 2010, I can't think we imagine that we would have enough to talk about 52 weeks a year for seven years. <laughs> We're now closing yeah. in on like 350 shows, which is just mind-numbing to think about that. But really, the reason why we we keep going is because the audiences get larger. Um, you know, we have 125,000 people following me on on LinkedIn. We've got 250,000 people on Facebook. Uh, you know, thousands on Twitter, uh, thousands downloading every month our show, you know, tens of thousands every month downloading the podcast every month, listening to us on YouTube, listening to us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Android. Um, and so we keep going because, you know, you guys are supporting us and we're just so grateful for all the feedback we get, the love we get, the support we get. Um, and we, we do the show partly for us because we love talking about it and Kobus and I love spending time together. Uh, but another part of it is really to, to kind of engage with you. And so at this time of year, as we kind of say how, you know, our thanks for everything, um, we are truly, truly grateful for you to listen to the show and for your support and your engagement and your emails uh, and your downloading and all of that. And so just, uh, you know, for me, um, I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and and, and, and blessed time with your families and really just a, a heartfelt thank you for supporting us. Thank you. That'll do it for this last edition of 2016 and first edition of 2017 for the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander for Copus Van Staden. We will see you again in 2017. The discussion continues online. Head over to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa.